Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know about a podcast that we've been listening to here at Cirque Migration, The Migration Podcast, produced by our good friends at Amisco. There's four seasons of interviews with leading scholars exploring the latest in migration and mobility research globally. If you want a deeper dive into the world of migration, the latest theory and research, I recommend you check out The Migration Podcast. You'll find it on all the major platforms. Now on to our show. Welcome to Borders and Belonging, a podcast that explores regional migration issues in a global context. This series is produced by Cirque Migration in collaboration with LEAD Podcasting. I'm Maggie Pajuna, a researcher with the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Migration and Integration Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. Today, we're delving into Japan's evolving stance on immigration and exploring the shifting dynamics of migration to the country. Despite Japan's historical reputation for being socially, politically, and legally closed off to immigrants, recent developments indicate a gradual shift towards adopting a more comprehensive national immigration policy. We examine the innovative policies that are at the forefront of this transformation, and we consider their potential to bring about significant changes in Japanese society. In a moment, I'll be joined by two esteemed researchers to unpack the complexities of Japan's emerging role as a migration state. But first, we'll hear from someone who spent a significant amount of time working with refugees in Japan before also entering the world of academia, Nicholas A.R. Fraser. Nicholas first went to Japan from 2005 to 2006 to teach English. He lived in Ogaki, a city close to a manufacturing hub, and home to immigrant factory workers. Sadly, it didn't take Nicholas long to understand that, at the time, some locals were suspicious of their immigrant neighbors. I was starting to make friends there, Japanese friends, and they would tell me, like, avoid Brazilian people. And, you know, at the time, I mean, I still think now that that was pretty racist for them to say that. And, you know, it was a small town, and... and their impression was, you know, all these people are coming in and yes, they're working jobs. They're not just criminals, but we don't trust them. And, you know, we think maybe they might steal and they might do this or that. And so just avoid them. Nicholas did not heed his new friend's advice. He talked to fellow immigrants whenever the opportunity arose. They played soccer sometimes. He knew that the stereotypes they were sharing simply weren't true. And while he disagreed with what some of his new friends were telling him, he understood the context within which the comments were being made. Unlike Canada, where, you know, you grow up, like, seeing immigrant communities around and it's just just a part of life. Imagine you've never seen that. Everyone you've grown up with looks like you, talks like you, is from your town or locality or whatever. You know, everyone knows everyone. And then all of a sudden these outsiders come and they speak differently. They look differently. They act differently. 
And they're not necessarily breaking any laws. They're not necessarily causing any social problems. But that tends to make some people nervous. Nicholas went back to Canada for a few years. But that experience and those comments always stayed in the back of his mind. So when he returned to Japan in 2010, he decided to volunteer for an NGO dedicated to helping asylum seekers, the Japan Association for Refugees, also known as JAR. I started out volunteering for them once a week. And every day we'd get calls from people who, you know, weren't sure what their options were. They didn't necessarily have legal status. People in all kinds of difficult situations you would encounter on a daily basis and they'd be from all over the world. And hearing the stories of these people or even being a fly on the wall in that office was heartbreaking because every day, every day, you heard stories of people who it seemed like were falling through the cracks. The people seeking support at JAR weren't alone in their frustration with the immigration system. Many service providers, lawyers, and activists shared their despair. But at the time, Nicholas says, the status quo felt insurmountable to most. A lot of people were jaded. I don't think we can change the system. Most people in Japan don't care about immigrants. They don't care about refugees. The politicians don't care. The system will never change. And it was, it was very hard and very sobering to work for them. While the precarity that many refugees and asylum seekers experienced was dire at times, nothing could prepare them or the rest of the country for the triple disasters on March 11, 2011. That's when the largest earthquake ever recorded in Japan's history occurred in the Tohoku region. It caused a tsunami, as well as the meltdown of three nuclear reactors. The catastrophes killed over 18,000 people and displaced hundreds of thousands more. As the whole country reeled from the horrors of the disaster, Nicholas witnessed something unexpected unfold. What most people are not aware of, especially mainstream Japanese uh, society, is that our offices during that two to three day period when you know people just couldn't go to work or whatever because of the disruption from the earthquake, the phones were ringing off the hook. And the a lot of the calls were coming from people who had already gone into Japan, who some of them didn't even have legal status in Japan. But the message was consistently, Japan needs our help. Japan took us in when no one else would. So we want to help Japan. And it was surprising because some of these people, again, had pending refugee claims right? They could have been deported within weeks. And yet they were willing to put everything on the line and try to help Japan. A few months after the earthquake and tsunami, Nicholas met with local friends to catch up. And he told them about the disaster relief work he had been doing with JAR. And then I told them that a lot of the people that were involved were actually immigrants and refugees, including people without status. I remember this vividly. One of them looked at me and started tearing up and hugged me. And they were like, wow, foreigners care about this country? And I said, yeah. And so then they asked, well, tell me, what are these people been going through? Why are they in Japan? Are they here to work? You know, what's going on? And so I explained, no, these people are refugees. And I explained what that meant. 
And then I told them about, you know, Japan's very low asylum recognition rate. In other words, Japan's policy of rejecting over 99% of the asylum applications that are filed in Japan. And they were surprised. And they're like, wow, like, but we're a rich country. And then they started saying, well, you know, we, we've been refugees recently too, you know, with, with Tohoku, like we, you know, we, we know what it's like to be refugees, you know, we should, we should take more of these people in. To have this conversation with them where they basically told me like, yeah, like I think this policy is stupid. We should take in more refugees. And it sounds like immigrants and refugees are contributing to this country. And if that's the case, then great. We want more of them. It just, it totally ran against the narrative I was hearing from, from even people I worked with at JAR, right? This idea that it's never going to change because most people just don't want this. And it's this colossal thing. We, we just can't touch it. So that was, you know, powerful for me because after that, I thought, you know, maybe I should look into that more. It would be an understatement to say that Nicholas has looked into this more. Since 2011, he's researched shifting immigration attitudes in Japan. And what he's found thus far has been very encouraging. Probably the most exciting research that I've done recently is I've done some polls that ask people, would you support hosting immigrants? broadly. Like, do you think immigrants like add to our society? Do they contribute to our society in terms of like helping the economy, dealing with demographic decline, these kinds of things. We ran the poll three times, three surveys, one in 2019, one in 2021, and one in this past year. We found consistently attitudes are moving in a positive direction. Regardless of the argument you make, people in Japan seem to agree now that, yes, actually, immigration is a good thing. Many thanks to Nicholas A.R. Frazier for sharing his experiences and learnings with us. To help me better understand whether Japan is moving towards becoming a migration state and what that means for Japanese society are professors Nana Oishi and Ito Peng. Dr. Oishi is an associate professor in Japanese studies at the University of Melbourne and a former policy analyst at the International Labour Organization in Geneva. Dr. Ito Peng is a professor of sociology and public policy and the director of the Centre for Global Social Policy at the University of Toronto. She's also the Canada Research Chair in Global Social Policy. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a bit of context. Can you give me an idea of Japan's historical approach to immigration and its reputation for being closed off to newcomers? Professor Peng, let's start with you. Yeah, I think unlike Canada, Japan is, well, not very open in terms of its acceptance of immigrants. In fact, I think historically, Japan has really resisted immigration, I think largely because of its concerns over the preservation of the country's racial, ethnic, and cultural homogeneity. Even though I, I think Japan is, in fact, a pretty culturally and ethnically diverse country, but there has been always this myth uh, that it's uh, racially ethnically and culturally homogeneous. 
I think in addition to this, this collective imaginary about the homogeneity, I think politically, there's a small but very vocal segment of people in the main political party, uh, LDP, that's a liberal democratic parties, uh, their electoral base, that are quite anti-immigrant. Adding these two things together, I think Japan has always resisted accepting migrants and immigrants. I just wanted to say that, so I'm coming from the policy perspective. Since the 1990s, Japanese governments and Japanese people realized that its population was getting old very rapidly, partly because of its very low fertility rate. So instead of considering immigration as a potential channel to address their demographic aging issues, uh, I think the government had decided to implement more pronatalist and pro-women policies trying to address the labor shortages and the low fertility. So the Japanese government introduced, um, in fact, the Japanese government has introduced some very pretty progressive policies in its effort to raise fertility rates, including things like a variety of work-family reconciliation measures like maternity leaves, parental leaves, family allowances, and universal child care. And at the same time, they also tried to increase women's employment by introducing more flexible work and encouraging part-time work for women with care responsibilities. But neither of these policies have actually resulted in increasing the total fertility rate. So they seem to be sort of not been successful since the 1990s. The total fertility rate of Japanese women has stayed around, what, 1.4, which is well below the replacement rate. So I pretty much agree with what Professor Penn said just now. And I would like to add a few little things. Overall, Japan definitely has an image of being a closed country and a homogeneous country and so forth, even though it, it's, it's re in reality, it's quite ethnically diverse. At the same time, when you look at the data and policy, you realize that the reality is a little bit different. For example, when you look at the, the policies for skilled migrants, Japan was actually one of the most open countries, given that there is no um, shortage skills list. For example, the Australian government has or any governments have. And also there is no labor market test. So the employers didn't really have to show that there was a skill shortage and they couldn't really get the applicants from among uh, local people. So it would, it, there are some areas in which policies were actually have been open to migration. And that's one thing. And another thing is that the, the, the actually the number of migrants coming into Japan has been rising quite rapidly. And um, the latest data show that there are 3.2 million migrants living in Japan, which is still 2.5% of the population. But both the number and the percentage have been rising quite rapidly. And before COVID, um, Japan accepted um, almost 600,000 migrants a year, which is a lot. 
And the number dropped during the COVID, obviously, but it has been rising again after the border restrictions were removed in 2022. And then the LDP is also actually quite divided into two segments. And the one is definitely anti-migrants, as Professor Penn just said. But the other part is is trying to push migration much further. So there has been a bit of sort of internal struggle within the LTP as well that has been actually helping the recent policy change that have been brought up in 2019. I agree very much with Professor Oishi's point. I think what Professor Oishi's uh, sort of raised is that there is a formal policy side and the actual practice size that are are not in sync with each other. If you look at Japan's immigration policy, policy, formal policy itself appears quite unopen to immigration. And by here, I mean by immigration, different from migration in that I come from Canada where immigration means taking in people with an understanding that they will eventually become permanent residents and Canadian citizens. So that in terms of the policy, the formal policy appears quite closed. And yet in in practice, you see a lot of migrant workers and a lot of people coming into Japan. Right. So in the three decades between 1980 and 2019, Japan's foreign resident population nearly quadrupled. What recent policy shifts indicate that Japan is moving towards opening the country to more immigration and economic migration? I think as an alternative to sort of taking immigrants, as we know in Canada, I think Japanese approach to sort of labor shortage aside from trying to increase from women's labor force participation, I think has been to bring in more temporary migrant workers, particularly in the low-wage, precarious employment sectors, or you know what they call the 3K work, um, the kiken, kitanai, kusai. I think the English translation might be something similar to 3D work, um, that meaning dirty, dangerous, and demeaning kind of work. So many temporary migrant workers were brought in to work in areas like construction, cleaning, agricultural, and service sectors, sometimes under temporary worker visa or under foreign trainees visa. Uh, so this quadrupling of the foreign resident population is in large part a result of this large intake of foreign temporary migrant workers. I mean, you could say that, yeah, Japan is opening up to more foreign workers, but I'm not sure if they are all that open to immigration in the way that we understand in Canada. This is because most of these foreign workers are not going to be given or nor would they ever get permanent residency. Maybe perhaps with exception of a small group of professional or health or care related workers who come in through the EPA. 
or economic partnership agreement system. I guess, again, I think it goes back to uh, maybe Professor Oishi's point that that the formal, to me, the, the formal immigration policy in Japan is, to me, quite closed. Even though in practice, there are a lot of foreign workers coming into the country. I think sort of in my in my perspective, these are largely temporary migrant workers. And so it is not a kind of long-term immigration uh, sort of... I, I can't see Japan as moving toward opening the country to longer-term immigration or immigrants. Professor Oishi, your studies have analyzed how some of the major shifts in Japan's migration policies have been introduced through the redefinition of skills and skilled migrants. Can you explain what you mean? Okay. Um, the Japanese government had always kept the policy of not accepting unskilled migrants or semi-skilled migrants in the sectors such as agriculture and construction and so forth. But there had been a huge labor demand in these sectors. But because of this policy, they accepted migrants as foreign trainees, as Professor Payne just said. So they didn't accept them as workers, per se. However, this trainee scheme had long been criticized as very exploitative. And the U.S. State Department, for example, warned that some of these trainees were even considered as labor trafficking victims. So as the demand for migrants continued to increase in these areas, um, the government had to take some kind of action. So they decided to change the immigration law and then redefine the migrants in these sectors as specific skilled workers and created a new visa category for them. So after this change, migrants can work in the sectors now previously defined as unskilled or semi-skilled not as foreign trainees, but as workers. Professor Peng, what factors have prompted Japan to change its stance on immigration? I think the main factors that sort of made Japan to change its stance on immigration is the low fertility and aging population, or more like aged population. Its population has not only as currently something like you know, close to 30% of the Japanese population are over the age of 65. But Japan's population has actually begun to decline in total numbers since 2007. And at the same time, Japan has been facing a steady shrinkage of its labor force. So if it wants to sustain or grow its economy, it would simply need more working age population. So that's, I think that's what's compelling Japan to take in more foreign workers, which means it need to tweak its uh, immigration or migration policies. So having said this, as I said earlier, I think Japan is still pretty resistant to be completely open about its immigration intake. I, I, I totally understand what Professor Oishi is talking about, and it has sort of began to rethink its worker intakes and and began to rethink about the skill levels. But it is still 
largely focus on using the existing channel to bring in more temporary migrant workers rather than seriously considering opening up the immigration. By this, I mean, you know, bringing in people and families who will become permanent residents and maybe even become Japanese citizens. I guess by immigration, I am thinking about the long-term residency and transitioning to citizenship. I refer to migration policy as sort of temporary migrant workers. Professor Oishi, what do you think? I basically agree with uh, Professor Penn about the overall trend that the Japan is still primarily relying on the temporary migrants, for sure. At the same time, I think there have been changes in the actual policies in the last few years. I might call it like quite significant changes. And um, which means that, for example, even for migrants who hold a specific skilled worker visas in you know, agriculture, construction, and so forth, in 11 areas, they, after they work for five years and pass a skill test, they can stay in Japan permanently and bring their family over as long as they stay in the same industry. So uh, now the government is allowing family reunification for these workers, like new sort of skilled, uh, specified skilled workers, and so that they can stay with their family in Japan. When I was talking to many policymakers in Japan, they, are, they have shifted their focus from just accepting temporary migrants to sort of encouraging them to stay on in Japan for a long, longer period of time. To what extent that will be successful, uh, I'm not sure. But at least the, the government is realizing slowly that the Japan really need, needs people in a longer term. Not just relying on temporary migration schemes only wouldn't work. They, they are now aware of that. So that's why these changes were introduced recently. But um, the, the question is rather that whether Japan could attract these people into these areas because of the wages, which are relatively low. And, you know, even emerging economies and even some developing countries, wages are rising. So um, that, is, that is a big, uh, for, for me, that is the, that question. <laughs> but overall, I think the Japanese government has been really shifting its policies in the recent years. So as Japan is opening up a little bit and loosening its policies, what are some challenges uh, that it faces on this journey to become a more immigrant-friendly country? Professor Peng? I think probably there are two main challenges. I think first is the sort of, the first challenge is the social norm or the this collective imaginary or collective myth about Japan as being a racially, ethnically, and culturally homogeneous society or na homogeneous nation. I think it's this collective myth or collective imaginary that makes people fearful and wary of having having uh, sort of immigrants in because you know it is is it's scary to think that that a lot of immigrants coming in might uh, disrupt or wreck this idea of the of Japan as a homogeneous nation. But having said that, as Professor Oishi has mentioned, I think 
there's a sort of beginning of the, a, a bit of loosening of that thinking. People are beginning to rethink that collective imaginary. So maybe over time, social norms might change. The second, I think, big challenge is the anti-immigration politics. Governments sort of up to, until now, governments sort of tension and acquiescence to this anti-immigration lobby. Again, I think these anti-immigration voices are not a large element of the sort of current government, but they are very vocal and they are very loud. And so they seem to have a fairly strong lobbying sort of power. Uh, so I think what the government has to deal with is really trying to address this tension from within its constituencies that are kind of really resisting sort of that rethink of the immigration policy. Professor Oishi, your research has found that despite its open and lenient policies for highly skilled migration, Japan has not been successful in attracting many professionals from overseas. Why do you think that is? There are many reasons. <laughs> the most important one is the salary level. As I said earlier, Japan's salary levels for skilled workers are one of the lowest among industrialized countries. So it is very difficult to attract skilled migrants from the first world nations, such as Canada and Australia. The salary levels in other Asian countries are also rising too. Um, so Japan is kind of losing its competitive edge. So that's, that's the first reason why it's really difficult to attract professionals. And the second reason is the language. Most Japanese companies are still operating in the Japanese language only, and they expect high language proficiency from migrants. And that's quite challenging for most people. And migrants do still come and work in Japan, but the majority of them work for only several years and go home or go elsewhere. And my interviewees said it was difficult to maintain a good work-life balance in Japan because working hours are too long. And people also find it challenging to raise children in that kind of environment. So um, they leave Japan, unfortunately. Another reason is that a lot of migrants feel that they will not be able to climb up the, the corporate ladder as they see little diversity in the management. Diversity is, is quite important when you are working in the workplace, right? Like when you look at the, you know, if the CEO or, you know, the board members are 100% Japanese males, then you feel like you won't be able to make it, right? Yeah, the women particularly feel that they are disadvantaged because of this Japan's male-dominated culture. So they feel that they're doubly disadvantaged yeah, because they're women and they're migrants. So that kind of situation is also playing a role. All of these policy changes must be impacting public attitudes towards immigration in Japan. Professor Peng, you've described a phenomenon called pragmatic divergence in describing changing attitudes. Can you please explain what you mean by this? Sure. <laughs> uh, so in in our uh, 2021 paper in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies, we talked about the phenomena of uh, what we call pragmatic diversions in that many Japanese people we interviewed were in fact willing to consider 
actually more open immigration. So we interviewed workers and employers, policy people involved in health and long-term care or elder care sectors uh, in Japan, and found that many people felt that in light of the labor shortage and low fertility and population decline, that Japan should be more open to immigration for or intake of foreign care workers and some agricultural workers. Now, these people who we interviewed were, you know, working with nurses and care workers from the Philippines and Indonesia and other Southeast Asian countries, and also are working with agricultural workers. And they felt that it made sense to give them give some of them permanent residency and eventually even become Japanese citizens. So what we found out in our, our research was that first, many people actually didn't know much about Japan's immigration policy. And when we asked them about immigration, as in considering taking in more workers and transitioning them to permanent residency, many of them were really surprised that there might be such possibilities. Then they raised the very common concern, uh, such as how it might disrupt Japan's ethnic and cultural homogeneity that that we hear a lot in the public discourse. Uh, But then when it came to foreign nurses and care workers, many of them were actually very positive about giving them permanent residency and eventually transitioning them to become Japanese citizens. So these contradictory views we found really, really interesting because what this seems to suggest is that when we ask people in general about immigration, many of them will simply sort of take this default position that reflected the dominant anti-immigration narrative, but they immediately deviated from that position when we asked them about foreign nurses and care workers. So what it told us was that people could actually change their default position when there's a sufficiently large material benefit or personal imperative to do so. Because these people are saying, oh, these foreign care workers were really contributing a lot to our society and we really need them. So in a sense, these people who we interviewed uh, were really quite open to taking in more foreign care workers and agricultural workers. In fact, uh, given the labor shortages in these sectors, they thought the government should be more actively bringing in more of these workers. So, So that's the sort of foreign nurses and care workers that come in through the economic partnership agreement. These people felt that the employers felt that they were very important, that they felt that the current system of having these workers come into the country, work for three or four years, and then have them write the Japanese licensing exam for nurses, nursing or for care worker for for which many of them actually fail, largely because of the language issues, and therefore 
once they, you fail, you get sent back to the sending countries. The embers felt very frustrated by this. Many of them said, you know, you invest in these people for three to four years, providing them with training and experience, and you lose them after four years because they simply couldn't pass that licensing exam in Japanese. They said that didn't make sense. So they wanted better system to retain them. And they thought one way to do this might be to provide them with longer term stay or permanent residency. So many people also said that these people are really making important contributions to Japan and to Japanese people. Uh, so by pragmatic uh, diversions, what we meant was that people can actually hold very contradictory views about immigration and that people can change their positions when there is a sufficiently large material benefit or personal imperative to do so. That's so interesting. Are there any cultural or societal shifts happening in Japan helping to integrate immigrants? Professor Oishi? Yes, absolutely. When we look at various national polls and surveys, Japanese people's support for immigration has been increasing quite rapidly, particularly since 2019. Now, in any polls you look at, um, between 60 to 70 percent of Japanese people support more migration and long-term settlements of migrants. It's a big change. And people are now fully aware that the Japanese economy cannot be sustained without migrants. So when the COVID-19 hit the country, the change became quite clear. So first, when the COVID hit, there were very few COVID-related violence against migrants in Japan. I was quite surprised, actually. Um, in Australia, where I live, I felt actually quite scared to walk around the city since there are so many anti-Asian hate cases. And I talked to people in Japan, uh, including migrants, obviously, and they said they haven't heard or observed any hate cases. And I wouldn't say there was no case, and there must have been some, but the situation seemed quite, quite different from the situations in Australia or in, in other countries. Also during the pandemic, um, there was extensive assistance for migrants. In Japan, as long as um, migrants were registered at the municipal governments, they could receive a financial package just as Japanese citizens. And not only that, in the small towns that I was doing field work, migrants told me that the town official visited the, the house of every single migrant who had not applied for the COVID package because they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that no one would be left out. Wow. Yeah, the mayor also visited every single migrant entrepreneur because he knew that they, would, they were having difficulties. So the mayor asked them like, what kind of help they needed, etc. So one migrant entrepreneur told me, I was really impressed and I really felt that I was part of the community. So I was quite surprised um, by the, the, these comments that I received from migrants living in regional areas. So I could see that the, things are changing slowly in Japan. If I wouldn't I would say this, this was done every single municipal uh, area in Japan. I wouldn't say that, but I could see the sort of, sort of changing signs in, in the country. What can other nations learn from Japan's experience in moving towards becoming a migration state? Professor Peng? I guess maybe they could learn, uh, well, maybe two ways. Uh, first, I think... Our studies show that 
immigration is actually a pretty natural and positive phenomenon. As Japan's case shows, uh, without foreign workers, Japanese economy will not be able to survive. And as its population continues to age and decline, Japan will need more foreign workers and immigrants to come and work and support its economy and the society and to care for its people. So I think what other countries could learn from Japan's experience is that one way or another, in the long term, immigration is actually pretty positive, and it is an important way for the society to sort of sustain itself. I think second thing many countries could learn is that you know uh, people's views and ideas are often pretty contradictory and fluid, depending on what information people get and how their context, their social reality and context change, people can actually change their mind and ideas about policies like immigration. So from the point of view of the policymakers or NGOs or other social and economic actors, I think having good research and providing people with information about how their society is changing, how immigration can contribute to society, and things like that. Why it's so important to have diverse society, diverse population. These information and research can really help shape people's understandings and positions about you know, immigration and other policies. Japan is still you know, obviously behind me in many areas compared to uh, traditional immigration countries like Canada and Australia, but there are two things that I can think that we can learn from Japan. The first thing is that temporary migrants are actually quite well treated in Japan. It is partly because of the ways in which the municipal governance system is organized, but temporary migrants can also receive the same benefits that the permanent residents and citizens can get. The only condition is that they have a legal status. In many countries like Australia and Canada, uh, temporary migrant workers and in, in international students are excluded from various benefits such as public health care, like in Ontario, like OHIP, for example. International students are not covered by OHIP. Uh, temporary migrant workers are not covered. Uh, same in Australia. In Japan, all migrants who stay in the country for more than three months are covered by the national health care insurance. The, the get child allowance, the school tuition is free, and almost all benefits that they can enjoy that are not actually available in Australia and Canada. So that's a big benefit for temporary migrants. I actually didn't realize that until I immigrated to Australia myself. So I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, temporary migrants in Japan are really well treated compared to, you know, uh, those in other countries. Another point is that Japanese employers don't ask migrants for local work experience, which is the case in Australia or in Canada often. If they like the applicants in Japan, they accept who they are and they try to train them on the job. Japanese labor shortage level is so serious. That's why they are doing it. But not requiring local work experience is actually facilitating more migrants to come and work there. So that's another thing that we can learn from the experience. How do you see Japan's policy innovations affecting the country's future? I think Japan's sort of traditional policy approach to immigration 
is probably not very sustainable or effective in the long run. But I also realize that there's been policy changes that is going to make it more sustainable. The reason I say this is that I think the fertility rate in Japan is going to stay low and the country will simply continue to age and the population will decline. It's only taking in foreign workers that might address kind of immediate labor shortage concerns. But in the long run, you will really need to address chronic labor shortage and economic decline issues. So for that reason, I think Japan will need a much more active immigration policy, not only to bring more workers in, but to bring in more people, people who will make Japan their home and have families in Japan. I think so for that, what Japan needs to do is to make the country more attractive for people to want to come and stay. And for that, it has to make the country more attractive place where people want to be in and to build their future. And this means Japan needs to be sort of be more equal amongst themselves, like between genders, with both the native born and the foreign born people. It needs to be more inclusive. And I think it needs to be more diverse. I think that would be the key for Japan's sort of population and economic sustainability in the long run. Professor Oishi, how do you see Japan's policy innovations affecting the country's future? Yeah, actually, I'm so glad that Professor Penn mentioned all these things. Actually, I totally agree with her. And that's exactly, actually, that's exactly what I told the government officials when I was sitting on the, when I was sitting on the government policy committee on immigration in early 2010s. But at the time, when I said those things to the government officials at the time, it didn't really hit them. It didn't really hit them at the time, but then now they are really feeling that, yes, we need to be more attractive. And the discourses among the government officials have changed quite a bit for the last five years or so. I'm really glad that finally these officials are adopting a new policy and trying to attract more migrants to come and stay in the country. It was just a very positive development, but at the same time, I'm a bit worried that it came a little bit too late. I hope it won't be too late, but I'm, I'm still very concerned because now the yen is, yen is very weak and the, the country's salaries are really low and Japan may not be able to attract a sufficient number of migrants at this point, particularly in the sectors like IT and healthcare. So I'm quite worried about that. But at the same time, the positive thing is that the, a lot of policymakers and are really driven to to push more migration these days. So, for example, when you look at the uh, 2021 budget on multicultural services for migrants, Japan is actually allocating a lot more resources than Australian government. So, the Japanese government spent 167 million. Canadian dollars actually converted to Canadian dollars recently uh, so that people can understand what it is like. Yeah, so in 2021, the Japanese government spent 167 million Canadian dollars on multicultural services for migrants, whereas the Australian government spent only 106 million Canadian dollars. Given that migrants comprise only 2.5% of the population in Japan, 
and 33% in Australia. So it shows that how much commitment the Japanese government is making by doing this to make the country a lot more attractive. I hope this push is going to change or the bring a positive change to Japan. But at the same time, Japanese workplaces also have to change. Because as I said earlier, a lot of migrants leave because of the unfavorable、um, uh, working conditions, lack of work-life balance, very difficult situation in which they raise children, etc. So a lot of migrants leave after several years. And the, the biggest challenge is that a lot of Japanese people also leave as well recently because of the, the same problems. The Japanese government has to tackle not just the maintaining population by bringing migrants into the country, but also have to tackle preventing or the try to motivating Japanese people, more Japanese people to stay in the country as well. All right. Well, thank you both. That was such an amazing conversation. I feel like I learned so much. I think this is a really wonderful conversation. And I totally agree with Professor Oishi about Japan needs to work to make itself as much more attractive place for people,、uh, not only to bring more immigrants in, but for Japanese people to leave the country. I think that's so important. I mean, I know、I'm, I've been pretty critical about Japan, but part of me is also a sort of somewhat optimistic. I grew up in Japan, and then as an adult, I also went back to Japan to work. So I really see a lot of really positive things about Japan. Professor Oishi said Japanese government might be a little bit late in realizing what it needs to do. But I think once it realizes what it needs to do, I think you will do the right thing. Thanks to Nana Oishi and Ito Peng for joining me today. And thank you for listening. This is a Cirque Migration podcast produced in collaboration with Lead Podcasting. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to Borders and Belonging on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on Japan's immigration policies, please visit the show notes. I'm Maggie Pajina. Thanks for listening.